This is a big day in the PCA. And on this episode of the PNR Churchman podcast, we are commemorating the 50th birthday anniversary. The PCA is 50 today. On this day, December 4th, 1973, the first General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America was held in Birmingham, Alabama at Briarwood Presbyterian Church. There were 387 commissioners representing 215 churches to that first General Assembly. And here's the statistic I really love. There were 179 teaching elders and 208 ruling elders. Yes, more ruling elders. The first moderator of that General Assembly was, in fact, ruling elder Jack Williamson. And what you're about to hear is his moderator's address, the first address to the assembly. Um, This audio was provided by Wayne Sparkman, who I always forget his official title, and I call him the PCA historian. He doesn't really, uh, he, he tries to minimize his work there at uh, the PCA Historical Center. Uh, so Wayne works at the PCA Historical Center, and he was uh, ordained a ruling elder at his former church before taking this job. Uh, so this episode is brought to you by the PCA Historical Center, and I really encourage you to go to PCAhistory.org, and you can check out all the information documents on there there's there's a lot it's also brought to you this episode by birmingham theological seminary bts offers master's programs in counseling biblical studies there's master of divinity degrees for those looking to enter into pastoral ministry Uh, for pastors looking to extend their studies there's doctor of ministry degrees and there's certificate programs that apply to anyone but particularly to ruling elders which is really cool So now enjoy this opening address to the First General Assembly held 50 years ago today. Dearly beloved, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On this historic occasion, we gather at the call of Almighty God. We gather in the providence of our Father who art in heaven. We gather to worship and to honor our Creator. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We gather to form a true branch of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. We reaffirm our allegiance to him as a king and lord of this church and the sole lawgiver in Zion. We remember his promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let us then immediately declare the purpose of this church, our portion of which tonight becomes a formal ecclesiastical entity. This church exists merely for the sake of God. Its purpose is not human or humanistic, as to get a believer to heaven. 
Its purpose does not lie in us, but in God alone. The origin of this church is in God. The form of its manifestation is from God. And its purpose from the beginning to the end shall be to magnify the glory of God. Let us then declare its nature. This church is a spiritual organism, including heaven and earth, but having at present its center in heaven, not on earth. We are in this world, but not of this world. We declare our devotion to a church as a spiritual institution, but we know that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is not of this world. Not until he comes again will his church be the center of the cosmos. It is if now we only dimly discern its nature. One day it shall descend from heaven and the new Jerusalem shall be here among us and it shall be visible for all to see. But now we admit that the beings have been withdrawn into the realm of the invisible, where he is. For on high is the altar of atonement, and on high is the altar of incense, and on high is our only high priest, Christ himself, who according to the ordinances of Melchizedek ministers even now at these altars on our behalf in the presence of the living God. So in him, around him, through him, with him, before the living God is a true sanctuary. It is invisible, but it is real. It is a spiritual organism. If that be its purpose, and if that be its nature, then who are we gather here to bring into being a true branch visible? of that invisible church? Who are we? We are the called, the regenerated, and the sent forth by the king. You heard the words of the apostle Paul to the Ephesians. We claim they are for us. You remember the, dr the dramatic declarations of Paul in those phrases? as they now apply to us. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. What a blessing. He chose us, said Paul, before the foundation of the world. Unbelievable. He predestined us to be adopted into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of what we are. Chosen and adopted into his own family, the children of the living God. We in whom, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. We are but sinners 
saved by grace, but ambassadors sent forth by the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth as his personal representatives. We are but a group of confessors who will live in an ecclesiastical union in obedience to the ordinances of Christ himself. This is no mystical spiritual body with some magical powers over the myst- and a mystical influence over men. No, we are but confessing regenerated sinners who have been called by God to be in subordination to Christ our King. We are called to be a visible manifestation of the Church of Jesus Christ on this earth. The Church of Jesus Christ is not a building. It's not a spiritual institution. It's not a spiritual order. It's a group of living stones with Christ Jesus as a cornerstone. We are a group of regenerated and confessing individuals who have been united not as we have seen fit, but according to the ordinances and will of Christ. We are a priesthood of believers. Do not misunderstand me. I do not say that the church consists of a number of pious religious people who've gathered together in group for religious purposes. This in itself would have nothing in common with the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true that the real heavenly church invisible will manifest itself in the church visible. If not, we have a society, not a church. But the real essential body remains the body of Christ, which is composed of people who have been born again, regenerated by his spirit. Merely for pious, sincere people to get together for religious purposes is not sufficient to bring in the being a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There you have a religious society, but not a Christian church. This is the great contradiction and danger of our generation in America. There are many religious societies, but far fewer Christian churches as Satan is using these religious societies to give a false sense of eternal security to their members. They are being taught that to be religious is synonymous with being Christian. They are being taught that they are one and the same. What a tragic error. This is not to say that these religious societies are all bad. On the contrary, many of them are good. For the most part, they're composed of sincere people who are dedicated to a cause. Some are totally dedicated. They exhibit zeal and courage as they follow their cause. They are sincerely convinced they are right. They use Christian terms. But they are philanthropic. They are altruistic. But they are always humanistic and secularistic. Whatever movement is evolved with the day becomes the cause of the year. For such a society, and many Americans join these religious societies as a fashionable facet of the good life. They call themselves Christians. In this they may be absolutely sincere, but many are certainly wrong. As Saul of Tarsus was certainly sincere when he thought 
He was religious, but he wasn't a Christian. Look at the autobiographical account he gives of himself. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was sincere. He was pious. He belonged to the largest and most powerful religious society of the day. But until he was regenerated on the road to Damascus, he was not a Christian. But once he met the living Lord Jesus Christ there, as an individual, he caught a new sight of his mission. Hear his own words as he stood before King Agrippa, as Dr. Luke recalls him. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand on thy feet, for I have appointed thee for this purpose, to make a minister and a witness both of the things which thou hast seen and all those things which I send thee, delivering thee from the Gentiles and from the people, unto whom I now send thee to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan and the God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. When Paul met Jesus on that road, he became a Christian, and then he went forth to proclaim that good news to the known world. He went out to, throughout the known world to form true branches of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and to proclaim the good news of salvation through him. The true church on earth then consists only of those who have been incorporated into Christ, who bow before him, who live in his word, and who obey his ordinances. We do not claim to be perfect, nor will this church be perfect. But on this, at this first assembly, we do assert and declare that we have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been born again to come to know the living Lord Jesus Christ as individuals. And we are being sent forth to proclaim his word to minister his sacraments to believers, and to exercise discipline in the church to preserve the purity of his truth. And as we stand before Almighty God and know our minds and hearts, this is the necessity that's laid upon us. Tonight, we raise a fresh, clear banner of truth to the living Lord Jesus Christ before this watching world. It shall stand out distinctive in contrast to the many false religious societies which bear his name. It shall not be conformed to this world. We unfurl it for the world to see Christ. It shall we raise a standard to which the wise and the just may repair. Following in true apostolic tradition, we gather to form a true branch of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. God being our helper, we can do no other. But to understand this necessity which God has laid upon us, we must also proclaim the principle that has motivated us to this hour 
We must labor for the watching world. This principle. Let us do it in boldness now. The principle that has motivated us is the practice of purity in the visible church. Because of this principle, we have been forced to separate from the form of visible church in which we were members. We have separated, but the principle is not separation. Separation is a negative idea. Ours is a positive idea. Separation is merely the price we've had to pay for the principle. This separation has not been easy. It's been a terrible price. We many have had to let good and kindred go. It has caused division among families, among friends, among congregations. It has been heart-rending and with many tears. Separation from foes with whom one has been associated by tradition is not easy, but separation from Christian friends is traumatic. It is only with much prayer and great sorrow and mourning that we concluded that the practice of principle of purity in the visible church, we had to separate. Now, before we made this horrible decision to leave our mother church, we had to settle another issue. We had to settle the first issue. That issue was that the church did must to which we belong as an organization must not claim our first loyalty. Christ has our first loyalty. And when the Lord Jesus Christ ceases to be the Lord of an organization, it can no longer have our loyalty. Some may disagree, but for us, God laid upon us the call to practice the principle of purity. Now, this did not come overnight. It's come gradually over a period of years. Long ago, men began to see these trends developing in our church, former church, as she began to lose her first love. Modernism and liberalism began to infect the PCUS over 30 years ago. We do not have time tonight to give proper credit to those men who have fought so valiantly over those decades to try to arrest those trends within our beloved church. But we must pause to give some credit to a few. Over 25 years ago, a group of men from the Presbyterian Journal met in the Biltmore Hotel in Atlanta. Cognizant of these trends and fearful of the dangers that our church would lose her historic mission and her first love for Christ. With prophetic vision, these men analyzed those dangers, and as I read the minutes of that meeting recently, I was amazed to, look, to see that of the list of dangers they then saw 25 years ago, all but save one are now a reality in the PCUS. The Presbyterian Journal has been the focal point of leadership. 
we pay tribute tonight to those faithful fathers who led us to this hour. In the early 1960s, God gave one man of the need in the Presbyterian Church for the preaching of the full, whole, counselable God in evangelical fervor. And the Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship was born. Rallying around him were others who had this zeal. And throughout the width and breadth of our Southland, these men have gone proclaiming the gospel, attempting to arouse a church before her God to the truth. To them, we owe a great debt of gratitude for this hour. Then in 1964, God raised up an organization of laymen, concerned Presbyterians. Again, God called one man and gave him the vision and the zeal to surround himself with a group of field men and to God consign Presbyterians to attempt to bring our church back to her primary mission of winning souls to Jesus Christ and nurturing them in the faith. The attempt was made through the constitutional process of the courts of the church. Many of those faithful warriors sit before me tonight. Some are still fighting a real God action back in the church among those thousands of sheep who languish in unconcern and darkness. Praise God for these faithful laymen. And then, a few years ago, God laid it upon the heart of a group of ministers in our church, six, over 600, to sign a statement they call a declaration of commitment, attempting again to call our church back to her primary mission, and to publish this declaration of commitment in all the major newspapers and full-page ads in our Southland. These men stood for the faith. The direction that any church takes is directly related to the course of her ordained ministry. And in spite of the threat of ecclesiastical oblivion and persecution, these strong men of the faith stood to be counted, and many and most stand here with us tonight. Presbyterian Churchmen United are entitled to a great debt of gratitude for this hour. Finally, let us never forget those faithful who labeled in isolation, marooned Presbyterians, if you please. Let us pray tribute to those great prayer warriors in the homes, those women who prayed while we fought, who spent many lonely nights while we traveled, who gave up some of the best years of the lives of their husbands to this cause, who educated them so they would know the truth, and who built fires under the sessions through their ruling elder husbands. They also serve, said Milton, who only stand and wait. Praise God for each one of them, for no man here deserves any more credit for this hour than those faithful women who are ours in Christ. Now, for three decades, these and many others 
have attempted to, uh, to stop these trends in the Presbyterian Church, but their efforts failed. Our former beloved Church continued on her fetish for ecumenism, for unity of form regardless of faith. We are already linked with UPC USA in constitutional principle through Union Presbyteries, and thus we have approved their doctrinal position of the Confession of 1967. But her greatest deviation from her historic witness has been in her attitude toward the Scriptures. The true Church of the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to those who by the grace of God are faithful to the Scriptures. The high critical theories of Scripture and the neo-orthodox view of Scripture have become the, the dominant position of the PCUS. To them, the Bible is the Word of God, is not the Word of God. Written, it merely contains the Word of God. To them, it is not absolute objective truth. For them, truth is subjective to the discovery of the mind of man. I believe it correct to assert that there is not one single professor in the four PCUS seminaries who holds to the doctrine of Scripture of our Founding Fathers. Men are consistently being ordained in the PCUS who deny the cardinal doctrine of the faith. Universalism is being openly defended in many of the presbyteries. As a result, ethics and morality are determined by permissive situationalism, such as abortion for socioeconomic reasons. Dr. Morton Smith has cataloged in his book how has our goal become down in over 200 pages? These deviations in three decades of assembly actions alone, it has been my observation that wherever the inspiration and the authority of the Word of God is attacked, the person and work of the Word of Christ is demeaned. The work of Christ in the world becomes equated with any noble cause. The zeal for the gospel of Christ is lost, and the temper of the times dictates the religious cause of the day. And so we came to see, after three decades, that we had to evaluate our position. What came first? Christ came first. Separation was the price we had to pay for the principle. We then began to look for a method. The best constitutional method appeared to be the escape clause in the plan of union with the UPC-USA Church. We had been promised it. We accepted those promises in good faith. We waited. Then in February of this year, instead of presenting a final draft of that plan of union with an acceptable escape clause to the 1973 Assembly for vote, as had been promised, the entire plan was discarded and an effort was started to write a new plan. Those present were open to say it's merely political, ecclesiastical expediency that dictates this action. Faith in which we had placed in them had been broken. We were forced to take an alternative procedure. That procedure brings us here tonight. And you might ask, well, if you practice a principle of purity in the visible church, why didn't you discipline those who violated purity in the PCUS? That's a good question. That's a good question. 
But the answer to that is, it is impossible, we found, to consider discipline in the PCUS, in fact or in theory. For you see, where truth is relative and is subjected, there is no standard with which to discipline. And instead of the truth absolute in the scripture as discipline, there has been substituted the idea of pluralism. Pluralism is a great umbrella which says we'll gather all in, no matter with varying points of view. The church is big enough for all. Gather them all under this large umbrella. We will have diversity, but you cannot have discipline under such diversity because you have no standard with which to make a judgment. Truth is not practiced. Accommodation, uh, compromise, uh, live and let live. These are the philosophies that are practiced. Tendency to, toward latitudinarianism and always a low view of scripture results. It gives a multi-shaded group view of Christianity. And so tonight, we could not discipline there, so we stand here to give a clear, distinct witness to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ in his church. A word of personal testimony. Why? As a ruling elder, I took vows to study the peace and the unity and the edification and purity of the church. For a decade now, I have diligently sought to fulfill these vows within the courts of the church. I have reluctantly concluded that I could find little peace in a structure that in its official acts and doings were consistently contradicting my faith, could find little unity in a structure that advocates a pluralism and a diversity that tolerates unbelief. For me, two cannot walk together lest they be agreed can find a little edification in a structure that continues to embarrass me in its official acts and doings and forces me to spend most of my time in apology and negative reaction, and can find a little hope for purity in a structure that permits unbelief to run rampant and has lost its will and its ability to discipline. This is my duty as I saw it. It was not that I wished, but it was that I must. Others may have different views. We respect that dues because God alone is Lord of the conscience. But as for us who gather here, we gather at the call of God and at the necessity he has laid it down upon us. But note well, we do so with tears, not with drums playing or flags flying. We gather in humility at the task God has set before us. Now, having declared our purpose and the nature of this church and having explained who we are and the principle that has motivated us to come here tonight, we would again state the commitment which binds us together in the church. We have committed ourselves to the rebirth and the continuation of a Presbyterian church loyal to Scripture, the Reformed faith, and committed to the spiritual mission of the Church of Christ as Christ commanded in the Great Commission. 
For us, the Bible is both necessary and sufficient. Apart from Scripture, man is hopelessly lost. Created in the image of God, man has fallen and darkness has engulfed him. Man in sin is not only spiritually ill, he is spiritually dead. He's not only confused in his pilgrimage throughout this world, he's lost. He's like a person in a forest without a map, without a compass, without a guide, and not knowing which way to go. To be sure, there is a revelation from God in the cosmos. God continues to speak to men in spite of their sin. But the consequences of sin are such that men cannot hear. Other sounds distract them, and the sound of the world dim the call of God. They hear him indistinctly. Without some leading, they will never find their way to the Father's house. This is why salvation from God is necessary. Apart from it, listen to the terrible words of the Apostle Paul as to their condition. As he wrote, separated, they are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, and having no hope without God in this world. We therefore declare the necessity for regeneration, for real existence, and of revelation for clear consciousness. Thus we see the necessitas, sola, scriptura, the need for scriptural revelation. To abandon or depreciate scripture is tantamount to abandonment or depreciation of Christianity itself. In paradise, in the Garden of Eden before the fall, there was no Bible, and there will be no Bible in the future paradise in glory. But here and now, it is God's revelation to man of what we are to believe about him and what he requireth of us. It is the only infallible rule of faith and practice, and we declare we are committed to build a church founded upon loyalty to God's holy word. We are committed to a church loyal to the Reformed faith. Ecclesia Reformata. By this we mean a church that has been renewed according to the word of God. We must not be so hidebound by tradition that we are impervious to the truth that's in the scripture. We must not be so ingrained in our own thoughts and thinking that we do not realize that God may yet speak to us through men. Ah, oh, we must reform according to the scripture. That's what being a reformed faith church means. We must remove from Christianity, as the world sees it, those beliefs and practices that have become attached to it in our day and time, which are without foundation in scripture. We acknowledge this cannot be accomplished without the Spirit of God. So we pray that his Holy Spirit shall show and dwell this church, that it shall be a clear reflection of the body of Christ, reformed by the Scripture. And we have heard the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks to each of us of our primary mission. Go ye, he said, therefore into all nations, and teach them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Our primary mission is to declare this good news to the planet on which we live. First, where we live, and then to the hinderlands 
where thousands tread who know not our Lord by claiming the promise of his presence we are committed and tonight we again commit ourselves before him to rededicate ourselves to the fulfillment of that commission by his power and in his strength we are committed to a church loyal to scripture reformed in faith to the word of God and consumed by the commission of our Lord to with him to go to tell it to the world. Having thus declared our commitment, we would address specific groups of people with whom we shall come in contact in our mission. I would liken these groups to five in concentric circles from the outside to the inside. We would come to contact with all the people of the world, with all the churches of Jesus Christ throughout the earth, with the Reformed family of churches of Jesus Christ, with the Presbyterian Church of the United States from which we came. We are now a brethren in this church. Let us address ourselves to these groups. For all the people of the world, we have this good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. It is not his, his desire that any of you should perish. He sent his Son, Jesus Christ, on this earth that you might be reconciled to God through faith in his Son. Jesus gave his life on the cross as an atonement for your sin. This sacrifice was sufficient for all of you. God calls you to repent and believe this gospel. There is no other way to heaven. No man can come to the bar. God the Father saved through God the Son. The alternative is eternal damnation in hell, separated from the Creator. We shall and do proclaim this truth to all men regardless of race, color, creed, or national origin. This is good news for every creature created in the image of God. God hasten the day when they shall hear. To all the churches of Jesus Christ throughout the earth, we send greetings in the ties of Christian brotherhood with common mission. We desire to cultivate peace and charity with our fellow Christians throughout the world. We believe and profess one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It is Catholic or universal because there is one church. It is apostolic because it has a direct continuity with the church of the first century. It is indeed built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the key cornerstone. Now, it is a view held by some zealous Christians that theirs is the only true church or that their members are superior to other Christians in the other churches. We do not hold this narrow concept. We would distinguish between false religious societies and true Christian churches, but we do not say we are the only true Christian church. We simply say we take our place in the providence of God alongside those other true branches of the Christian church to witness 
to the glory of God and to the saving power of Jesus Christ, we declare that the visible unity of the whole body of Christ is not obscured or destroyed by its divisions in the different denominations, but all those which maintain the word and the sacraments and their fundamental integrity are to be recognized as true branches of the Christian church throughout the world, and we extend to you a right hand of fellowship and ask you to permit us to join you in your witness to Christ, to the Reformed family of Jesus Christ. We extend special greetings to the Reformed family of churches of Christ. We share with you the sharp accent on Jesus Christ, at the heart of our tradition and the foundation of our ecclesiology. We share the view that the church is not only an organism, but it's a fellowship of believers. Since you agree with us on the major points of doctrine and polity, we see great possibilities of much closer ties with you. We seek the oneness of which Jesus Christ spoke in John 17, the oneness of faith in him. We are convinced that there must be a unity of faith before there can be a unity of form, but we pray for that unity. We appreciate the insistence and encouragement you've already given us. We look forward to a closer relationship to you. We see in our mutual relationship the seeds of true ecumenicity. God hasten the day to the Presbyterian Church of the United States. We acknowledge our continued love and concern for you. You are our spiritual mother. In your arms we were nurtured. In your ordinances we were baptized. In your courts we were ordained to serve our Lord and King. To your visible organization we thought we had committed our lives. We could sever these ties only with deepest regrets. We have done only what we thought our duty demanded. We have done what we thought the honor of Christ required. We sincerely hope that in our going, in some way you may be recalled to the common heritage of historic witness which we share together. It is our prayer that God will use our going for self-examination of you as well as ourselves, and that God will bless you and call you back to your first love. Any such separation is traumatic, but in word and deed, we have attempted to show Christian charity for the sake of peace for the honor of the church, and for the glory of God. Without question, the most painful aspect of this separation has been to leave communion with many fellow believers with whom we stood shoulder to shoulder in the ecclesiastical battles of the last three decades. We believe we have moved as Christian statesmen with honor. We know you agree with us but disagree in principle, but disagree as to procedure. We respect your right to your judgment. We would prefer that you were with us today. We feel it is here you belong. Your absence makes us feel incomplete. We covet your continued fellowship in all areas possible. There are so many times and places where we continue our, can continue our warm fellowship and friendship, both public and private. And for our part, we shall continue to expedite and cultivate those opportunities, for we love you. Now extend to you our hands of love and goodwill, not judgment, and our open invitation and plea for you to join us soon. May God hasten that day. And now, brethren, to us who he gathered, we rejoice with you in praise and thanksgiving to Almighty God. 
for bringing us to this hour. Surely his providence has taught us that we are in his will, under his control, led by his Spirit. I counsel with you that our attitude toward others is most important. Regardless of the attitudes or actions of others, we must remember that we represent Jesus Christ before a watching world on this planet. Let men everywhere notice in us the three effects of nearness to Jesus, humility, happiness, and holiness. History teaches us that in prior church divisions, those who have come out tend to become hard. They tend to become absolutists, even in the lesser points of doctrine. Francis Schaeffer puts it this way. One must realize that there is a great difference be between believing in absolutes and having an absolutist mentality about everything. A great difference between believing in absolutes and having an absolutist mentality about everything. True humility is the only answer for the cause is thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Our Lord demonstrated that humility on the night that he was betrayed when he washed the feet of his disciples. Not that we ever keep fish foot washing, but I'm suggesting that we need the Holy Spirit to help us distinguish between those things which are revealed in Scripture and those things that are the product of human pride and opinion. In the former, we must not compromise, but in the latter, we must learn in true humility subjection before our brethren in the Lord. We must put away any form of mentality of being suspicious of our brothers in Christ. And we must show an observable love and trust and confidence in each other. For Christ has redeemed us and Christ is ours and Christ is in us. Until a man proves otherwise, he is a Christian in this church. And we must not be questioning his motives or his actions. That's a reaction to our former problems. Humility is the answer to that problem. Happiness should pervade our existence. We should rejoice and be exceedingly. God has given to this select group an opportunity to witness to his glory the likeness of which men have not had in many generations. What a privilege it is to have been born for such a day as this. He, we have the answer to life and to death. Christ is the answer. He came to give us a more abundant life. Oh, we will have trials and tribulations before this week will over. We'll have them. But be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world. We serve a living Savior. He's in this world today. He walks with us. He talks with us along life's dreary way. Be, re be glad and rejoice for this hour. Aren't you thrilled? And aren't in your spirit bubbling with enthusiasm and with praise. Let this be the mood that pervades this church throughout her existence. We must be happy in Christ. We must be holy. For God is holy. And we are God's. We bear the name of Christian. We have deliberately set ourselves as spectacles for the world to look at.
look at us. We say, we are truly Christian. We must realize that every moment of every day we stand in the presence of God. This concept Luther described in a Latin term, Coram Deo. The same concept that old Elijah had when he stood before Ahab and Jezebel and said, Before, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, it is this individual concept of standing momentarily in the presence of the mighty Creator that is the foundation of our holiness. Has anyone seen Christ in you today? Christian, look to your life, I pray. Have the little folks, things you've said and done, have they accord with the way you prayed? The world with a criticizing view has watched. Has it seen Christ in you? Has anyone seen Christ in you today? Christian, look to your light, I pray. They are aching hearts and blighted souls being lost on sin's destructive shows, and perhaps of Christ, their only view will be what they see of him in you. Will they see enough to bring hope and cheer? Look to your life. Does it shine out clear? Humility, happiness, and holiness are the three qualities which show nearness to Christ. And finally... Let me charge you. Let me charge you first to pray. It's far easier to fight than to pray. The promise is that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. More things are wrought by prayer than this world ever dreamed of. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against the rulers of darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness and high praises. Only fervent prayer will prevail. I charge us to pray. I charge us to wake. There must be no energy shortage in this church. Remember the true war cry of the church is Gideon's watchword, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. God must do it, but we are not to be idle. He's called us that he may do it through us. If we only cry the sword of the Lord, we shall be been guilty of idle presumption. If we should cry the sword of Gideon alone, we shall manifest an idle reliance on the arm of the flesh. We must blend the two. We can do nothing ourselves, but we can do everything through God, who is our strength. There's so much to do and so little time. We've got to work. I charge you to work. I charge you to be confident of victory, to pray, to work, and to be confident of victory. For the chosen children of Israel, the prophet Isaiah wrote the words of God that I believe apply to us. Hear them now, dearly beloved. You worry at being so small and so few, but Abraham was only one when I called him, but I blessed him, and he became a great nation. What a God. What a promise. <laughs>
we can be more than conquerors through him that's in us. For he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Oh, our ancient foe would seek to do us woe. In his craft and power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate on earth. On his earth there is no equal. Were we in our own strength to confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does they ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabbath is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Be confident of his victory. And now... We commend you to this God and to the word of his grace. We devoutly pray that the whole Catholic Church may be afresh baptized by the Holy Ghost, that she may be speedily stirred to give the Lord no rest until he, he establish and make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Mr. Clegg, be seated. Mr. Clegg, do we have a quorum and you make an announcement concerning the enrollment? Mr. Moderator, fathers and brethren, we appears that we do have a quorum. We have the enrollment of 338 commissioners at present. We do not have the figure on the guests at this time, but 338 commissioners are enrolled. Therefore, by the authority in me vested at the advisory convention, I therefore now declare the West General Assembly of the Continuing Presbyterian Church formally in session. <laughs>